chapter 1. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying this morning for your convenience. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you today. One other thing while we're turning there is uh, just a a prayer request for me. Uh, This coming Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there is the uh, International Calvary Chapel Conference that occurs annually. Uh, Calvary pastors come from all over the United States and really all around the world. It's going to be held in Southern California uh, and uh, down in Diamond Bar. And so I would just ask that you would pray for that conference to be blessed. It's not a business meeting. It's a, it's a spiritual meeting. It's a three-day church service uh, filled with worship and teaching and fellowship and a desire to hear from God. So if, that you would uh, bless, uh, pray that God would bless it. So many guys are out pastoring churches where there's very little fellowship around them, and this constitutes very important fellowship uh, for the year for them. And then also that you would uh, pray for me to hear what I'm supposed to hear as a part of this conference, and then uh, 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 very much want to hear from him, whatever he has to say uh, to me and related to us as a church at this season and in his work here. And then additionally, I will be teaching one of the sessions at the conference, so if you would pray for me related to that as well, I sure appreciate it and uh, always a blessing to not only represent the Lord, but also to represent you. And, um, and, and, uh, but I, I am a product of God's grace in your prayers. And so please uh, pray for me this coming week as well. We pick things up in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And through him we have received grace and fellowship for obedience to the faith among all, na- all nations for his name, among whom you are also the called of uh, Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you that it cleanses. We thank you that it equips. We thank you that it feeds, Lord. We thank you that it brings perspective uh, to our lives, spiritually speaking, in a way that nothing else in the world does. 
And we thank you for the privilege of being able to have an open Bible in our hands where so much of the world has to do this in hiding and with sections of Bibles. We bless you, Lord, for the privilege. And Father, we never ever turn to your word independent of you and your Holy Spirit and the recognition that your Holy Spirit is the author of this book and we need him to open it up to us. And so we pray that you would freshly fill us now with your Holy Spirit and that you, uh, he would teach us from your Bible this morning what it is that we need to hear from you. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' wonderful and precious name, amen. Please be seated. We find ourselves here this morning in kind of the middle, really very much in the middle of Paul's introduction to his letter to the church at Rome. And we began our study a couple of weeks ago by examining chap, uh, verses 16 and 17, which is kind of an encapsulation of the entire uh, letter and the theme of the letter, which is the gospel, uh, God's provision of a very, very powerful, very uh, multifaceted salvation uh, to mankind. And then last week we studied uh, the early part of Paul's introduction in which he identified himself as the writer of the letter, but also provided us with uh, two uh, very, very valuable uh, self-descriptions or descriptions, threefold descriptions, first of himself and then uh, of Jesus as well in verses 1 through 4. And this morning we will look to study the remainder of the introduction, and there are, are tremendous gems that are found within uh, the introduction to this letter and any of Paul's uh, letters. Paul declares essentially in verses 5 and 6 that our salvation is the beginning of a life that is intended to bring glory to God. That salvation isn't merely uh, the forgiveness of sins and then we go on about our lives and, and they're as self-dominated, as self-ruled as uh, ever they were. But now that uh, our, the, the gospel and salvation involves not only the forgiveness of sins but now the beginning of a life that is obedient to the Lord. He's going to develop this very, very fully uh, when we get to chapter 6. And what Paul is, by way of introduction here, is he's telling them that he's called as an, an apostle specifically in order to call the Gentiles, as he says in verse 5, into obedience to the faith. That is the message that he took to uh, the entire world and wanted the church in Rome to know as well, uh, is that uh, the message that he preached is that we could not only be saved and forgiven, but also then uh, beyond that, live a life of obedience to God's commandments. And as a result of that, to live a life that glorifies God and reveals God in a very pagan world that they were in the middle of and in the middle of the very pagan world that we live in the midst of as well. And all of this, he declares in verse 7, uh, in verse 6, uh, had happened to these Christians there in Rome. In verse 7, Paul brings forth a twofold description of Christians. And uh, it's interesting how he clusters kind of these descriptions, first of himself, then of Jesus, and then now of us as Christians as he's writing it. And he declares us, first of all, to be beloved of God. Uh, Weist, in his outstanding uh, Greek word studies, he translates it that we are God's loved ones. 
And that's exactly what Paul is saying. There's something about the fact that, and, and who can understand all the nuances of it, but God loves the entire world. He loves his entire creation. He loves every individual human being. But by virtue of the fact that we have done the single greatest thing that a person can do to honor God and enter into the fullness of his blessings, and that is to trust in his Son uh, for salvation. As Christians, uh, we become the recipients of his love in an even greater way. And that's what Paul is, uh, is describing here. And concerning the love of God, I don't know, we could do a, probably a 50-week series on it and not exhaust it. Um, the subject is uh, very, very vast and it's very, very mysterious. I think sufficient for us this morning is just to realize Whatever you know of the love of God, however much you've applied it to your own life, however uh, strong you are in the sense, uh, in the consciousness of how much God loves you individually and personally, not only as his creation, but now as his son and as his daughter, as a Christian, as a part of his kingdom, and as a part of his family, that you can take that love, the love of God that he has for you, it's absolutely limitless, and you can explore it, you can enjoy it, you can claim his love in every circumstance as much as you uh, could ever want and ever be able to. And then to realize that uh, in all of it, you are merely scratching the surface of how much he loves you. The only way that I know to even begin to try and get my head around it or even to get my foot in the door related to it is what Paul declares concerning the love of God a little bit later in this very book of Romans where he said God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And the single greatest demonstration of God's love for mankind is his willingness to sacrifice his son for the forgiveness of our sins. What it means to then become a part of his family and then him to become a heavenly father and lavish his love in an extra measure upon us, I don't know. I'm trying to grow into it all the, all the days of my Christian life, but with the knowledge that you will never and can never be come uh, too strong or uh, possessing of, of a knowledge of the love of God for us. And Paul wanted them to know and us to know that we are God's loved ones. We are not in the world alone. And there's something about the love of God and a relationship with God, relationships with people. Uh, they come and go. They're up and down. We're up and down in relationships uh, in people's lives. But God, uh, it, it, his love never fails. It never uh, comes and goes. It never wavers. He then goes on to describe us as Christians. He declares that we are called uh, to be uh, saints, as he describes it there. When you look at that verse 7, and it, and it says, called to be saints, you, you see the word to be, those two words, they're in italics, which means they're an insertion by the translators to help us have a better understanding of, of what is being uh, said in the original manuscripts. And most often those insertions are uh, very, very helpful, but not always. Um, here is a case where you look and you say, well, 
to be saints, called to be saints. Well, someday we'll be saints, like it's something that's in the future. But it's much better to just leave the two words out, and he simply declares us called uh, saints. What a saint is, and every Christian is a saint, a saint is someone who has been set apart, and that's what the word literally means. We get our, uh, the word holy comes from the exact same uh, Greek word. It means to be set apart, to be separated, to be holy. It means to be set apart, number one, from sin. And then second, it means to be set apart unto God, uh, unto his plan, unto his purposes uh, for our lives for him to then use our lives however he uh, sees fit. And most of us can remember a time in our life before we were Christians, our lives used to be set aside, set apart, not for God, but set apart for the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, these were our slave masters. We obeyed them uh, in whatever they called us uh, to do. Uh, we lived our lives, and, and, and they used our lives for their purposes uh, so, and, and so forth. But now our lives belong to God, and he reminds them and us that our lives are to be lived supremely for God and his purposes for us in this world. And this also teaches us that every single Christian is, uh, is a uh, saint. In other words, we're to be marked by those two things. We're to be marked by a holy life, and our lives are to be marked by our lives being yielded to God for his purposes to be accomplished through them. And it's important for uh, every single Christian to realize that. I think that sometimes people have funny ideas uh, about uh, saints and sainthood. Uh, most often, if a person isn't familiar with what we're talking about this morning, and you tell uh, them uh, you're a saint, I mean, their jaw might drop uh, because there's the idea that saints are some kind of rare, extraordinary uh, Christian, or they believe that someone who is a saint is someone who is uh, perfect. You might even hear a Christian say, well, listen, I'm no saint, and, uh, but the fact of the matter is we are. Uh, we are saints, and God calls us to live like one. Of course, Roman Catholicism hasn't helped in this regard at all. Uh, in their whole process of determining saints and how they portray sainthood uh, to the world and actually representing, attempting to represent God on the issue and not doing a very good job of it, but as Christians, the Bible teaches that we don't end up saints uh, sometime in the course of our life. We don't end up saints as a course of some process uh, after we die, but that we are saints now, the moment that we are born again. And uh, this is a title that isn't for some select few uh, among Christians, uh, but it is true of every Christian. The Roman Catholic process for sainthood, some of you'll recognize it uh, from your uh, background, and that is if a person has lived and they've died in the service of the church, while that soul of that person is said to still be uh, in purgatory, suffering for the sins uh, of, uh, of this life, the church then appoints a committee 
uh, to bring charges against this person's memory. Uh, and these, uh, these people that are given that charge are given the title of devil's advocate. And so they find every possible accusation of wrongdoing that might be brought against the candidate for sainthood. Uh, today we call this the press. Uh, they find, and then another committee is formed, and they present a defense against these charges that are being uh, brought against uh, this person. And then uh, they bring forth witnesses to defend the, uh, the life and, and the integrity of the person who has died. Uh, they then begin to search historical records for proof of the holiness uh, of the candidate, and evidence is then uh, searched for most specifically for whether some kind of a healing or miracle has occurred at the grave uh, of the person that's being considered for sainthood or uh, some healing has occurred associated to some relic associated uh, with their life. All of this information is then gathered, a trial is then held, and then if after a long period of months and sometimes even years, the defendant is found innocent of the charges that he or she is, uh, then she, he or she is declared to pass from purgatory into heaven. And then after another period of months or uh, even years, this person then passes through another ceremony known as canonization, and at that point, they are declared a saint. Well, if that was the basis for being called a saint, None of us would have any hopes of ever being called a saint uh, to endure that kind of a process, but of course, all of it is uh, contrary to the Scriptures. God calls us saints, not because we are saints completely practically, but because of the righteousness of Christ that has been put to our account and how He sees us positionally because of our faith in Christ, He sees us as holy. And then by his Holy Spirit, he works in our lives all the days of this life to then uh, lead us toward what he, uh, he already declares us to be, and that is to be holy and, and to, be, uh, to be saints. One of the things that is interesting, there was a portion of my childhood that I spent in the Catholic Church and was familiar with a lot of the, uh, the different processes that were going on and so forth. And in that way that uh, God takes um, it, all, everything and he works it together for good in our lives. But this exposure to all of this uh, very kind of a select idea related to sainthood, one of the things that it did for me uh, as a child, and it carries through to me this day, is, is that um, though I disagree, of course, because it's unbiblical what Roman Catholicism does in terms of de determining who is a saint and who isn't a saint. You see it right before you uh, with your own eyes in the Scriptures. But it did give me a, a deep sense of awe uh, when I ultimately did become a Christian and realize that God declares me to be a saint. And, and to realize this isn't just some kind of casual uh, thing that God ascribes to us, but it is a very, very uh, significant thing. It's a very, very big deal, and it produced an appreciation within my life to be uh, seen by God in his grace as a saint. And the same thing is true uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of each of us as Christians. And so this whole idea where you would sit and say, uh, declare to anyone, and maybe most importantly to yourself, 
I am a saint in the face of temptation, in the face of whatever, to be able to declare what is true in the Bible in the eyes of God. I am a saint. My life is not given over to all of these other things that it was once given over to. I'm a saint in the eyes of God. And that's how he sees me positionally and what he's producing within me practically. And uh, it certainly does us no harm, and it's a very uh, great encouragement to a holy Excuse me. I remember a story reading it many years ago, Harry Ironside, a famous Bible teacher and, um, <clears throat> and uh, pastored at Moody Bible Church. His commentaries are read to this day and, and, and tremendous. But he was uh, told a story of traveling by train from Chicago to the West Coast, and the uh, trip took a period of four days. And uh, in his particular train car, there were a group of Catholic nuns. And so every day uh, they conversed together. He would read uh, his uh, Bible, and then they would discuss spiritual things. They loved it when he would then read the Bible uh, to them aloud. And then on the third day, as they're getting just a day away from the completion of their journey, he asked them if they'd ever seen a saint. Uh, And they all answered, they'd never seen a saint. And then he asked them if they would like to see a saint. And you can imagine in the light of the process that I've just described to you in terms of how a Roman Catholic views sainthood, I mean, the the excitement they must have felt at the prospect of Harry Ironside producing a saint within, uh, within the car before their very eyes. Yes, yes, they said, we would like to see a saint very much. And then he astonished them by declaring himself to be a saint. He said, I am a saint. I am Saint Harry. Uh, And then he opened up the New Testament and he showed them the truth of it right from the Bible, including this passage that we're looking at here uh, this morning and uh, revealed this to them. As J. Vernon McGee used to say, famous Bible teachers, well, now in heaven, both of them are. He said, there's two kinds of people in the world. There are saints and there are ain'ts. And it really is that clear. I mean, we're in the most, we live in the most hyphenated country in the world in terms of how we separate ourselves. God looks at the world much more simply than we do. There are people who are saved and there are people who aren't saved. And those who are saved, God sees uh, as uh, as saints. A wonderful thing to be a saint uh, this morning. Then he continues his, his, he begins his formal greeting to them in the latter part of verse B, uh, or verse 7 rather, uh, when he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he declares to them grace and peace, he is doing something very significant. He is greeting them with the uh, most commonly used words by uh, Gentiles when they greeted one another, and then the most common word that was used by Jews when they greeted one another in that day. The Greeks or the Gentiles would greet one another by uh, declaring the Greek word charis to one another, which means grace. That's the Greek word that's used for grace in the passage. And so the word grace means undeserved favor, unmerited favor. And so it was their way of saying, have a great day. 
It was their way of saying, may you have a grace-filled day today. May you have a day uh, that you don't deserve, a day that is better than what you uh, deserve. The Jews would greet themselves, uh, one another, by declaring shalom or peace to one another. They didn't say grace. They said peace. And Paul takes and he combines these two greetings uh, to say something very significant to us about uh, our Christian life. And, uh, and, and the order in which he uses the words is very, very significant. You notice that he uses the word grace first and then peace. And all of the introductions to all of his letters in the New Testament, he never reverses it. He never says shalom and, ch- and charis. He never says peace and grace. It's always grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And it's entirely deliberate on Paul's part. And the reason that he does this is because he recognized that, the, that peace is a byproduct of grace. That is that no one can ever know the peace of God until they know the grace of God. Never, no one can know peace in their relationship with God uh, until they also realize that not only in terms of salvation, not only is salvation based upon uh, grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, but so too our relationship with God is based upon God's grace toward us. When he says grace and peace there uh, to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he mentions God the Father and he mentions Jesus, this is his way of saying, this is the kind of a relationship. Don't think I'm pulling a rabbit out of my hat and coming up with some kind of a Paulism. This is the relationship that both God the Father and God the Son want to have with every single Christian. And I think that the knowledge of this entire thing, this importance of grace and having a grace-based relationship with God, and that is the only means by which we will ever uh, be at peace in our relationship with God, I think it can completely transform our Christian lives. And uh, what is grace? Again, it's unmerited, undeserved favor from God. It is getting from God what I don't deserve. There's a distinction between grace and mercy that's interesting. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Now, that, that is, that, that'll mess your mind up trying to figure that out and the distinction related to it. Let me illustrate it to you this way. If I loaned you my lawnmower and you ran it all day without checking the oil and you burned up the engine on me, Uh, What you would deserve to do is to buy me a new lawnmower. But if I came to you and I said, listen, you don't have to buy me a new lawnmower. Uh, Instead, let me take you out to Outback Steakhouse for dinner. Now, not making you pay for the lawnmower, that's mercy. Not you not getting what you deserve. The dinner is grace getting what you don't deserve on top of it. And that's how God deals with us in our relationship uh, with, with him. In salvation, because of my sin, I deserved eternal separation from God in hell. But when God saved me, he not, uh, not only did he not give me what I deserved, and that is eternal judgment, but he then gave me what I didn't deserve, everlasting life. Uh, 
uh, in heaven. And that's why Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he said, for by grace, this unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But in our, all of this works in our Christian lives as well, our personal relationship with God as well. When I fail God, uh, when I mess up, uh, when I sin and I, I fall short of what God wants me to do in a given situation, God doesn't just let me return to him following the failure, but he then gives me another chance. That's grace. The, 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 the freedom to return to him, that's mercy, but giving me another chance is grace. I think about Peter in this regard. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he denies Jesus three times uh, that he even knows him. I mean, at the moment of testing, not yet filled with the Holy Spirit, he fails miserably. But even before all of that happened, God spoke to him, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, uh, the night before all of this uh, 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 is his denial. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That's a relationship with God that is based upon grace. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 9, it's known as the Christian bar of soap, if we confess our sin, that is to God, he, that is God, is faithful and just to then forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's grace. Hebrews uh, 4, verse 16, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That's what the throne of God becomes to us. As Christians, it is a place in which God dispenses grace, grace and mercy to us uh, as Christians. The relationship that we have with God is a grace-based relationship. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne uh, of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when I understand that this relationship with God is based upon grace that he doesn't deal with me according to uh, what I deserve, or he doesn't deal with me on the basis of my works, but rather on the basis of his grace, the result of that is peace in a relationship with God. No one will ever know peace in their relationship with God without being strong in the knowledge that this relationship with him is based entirely upon his grace. It reminds us that Christianity is lived as a response to God's grace. The Apostle John put this absolutely perfectly in his first epistle, 1 John 4:19. We love him because... He first loved us. Christianity is a response to what God has first done for us. God is the initiator in this relationship, and we are the responder. If we ever become, enter into our eyes that this relationship is based upon the fact that I am the initiator, and now God is the responder, you'll have a relationship with God. You will be saved. You will go to heaven someday, but you will never know peace in that relationship 
with God. Paul puts, and he builds this very truth into the, the structure of the book of Romans. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, he's, all of it speaks entirely to what God has done for us in providing us with a gospel and with salvation. And only after spending 11 chapters detailing what God has done for us does he then go on in chapters 12 through 16 to then describe to us what is the uh, proper response uh, to that kind of grace and goodness that God has shown uh, to us. Our Christian life, our life of obedience to God's commandments, it is to be lived out in response to what God has done for us. Not in order to earn something from him, but in order to express our worship toward him and our love for him in the light of what he has so graciously provided to us. Famously, in the book of Ephesians, it is the same structure. Paul communicates the same exact thing. Chapters 1 through 3 are absolutely jam-packed full of what God has done for us out of his grace in Christ Jesus. And only after he has made us strong in that, filled our hearts with all of that, this is yours as a Christian. This belongs to you. It is yours because of Christ. Does he then in chapters 4 through 6 then describe to us a life that is to be lived now worthy of what it is that God has first done for us and consistent with what he's done for us? And that's the reason in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 he begins that entire section, uh, second half of the book with the word therefore. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he writes, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that therefore uh, declares to us that the Christian life is lived in response to what God has first done for us. And it is impossible in my mind to overstate the importance of this that the Christian life is to be lived in response to what God has first done for us. And maybe I consider it so important because I see a fair amount of relationships with God that aren't built upon that foundation. And thus there's no peace in people's Christian life. But I say it, and I feel it's so important because uh, I lived in the early part of my Christian life uh, on the wrong side of this whole uh, grace and peace progression. I know it from practical experience. I spent the early part of my Christian life trying to earn everything from God. And I established immediately, it was my own ignorance of the Scriptures. I was growing at the time. Uh, but it was something deep within me. I was establishing a works-based relationship with God as opposed to a grace-based relationship uh, with, with him. And I was trying to earn God's favor in my life on the basis of my good works, how good I was on a given day, my hard work. And one of the things that I am is I am hardworking, 
and I am a hyper-responsible person, very responsible, very diligent. I take responsibility very, very uh, seriously, and, um, and I brought all of that uh, into my relationship with the Lord. In the world, of course, if you're hardworking and you're diligent and you're responsible, uh, usually those things are very, very uh, well rewarded. And so I just merely carried it over into my uh, relationship with God. And it worked out something like this. If I had a good day or I had a good week in terms of my uh, Christian uh, uh, witness, then I figured that God would be more likely to bless the home fellowship that I was leading. Uh, if I had a good day or a good uh, in terms of my Christian obedience, then I figured that he'd be more likely to answer my prayers. After all, everybody knows that uh, it, uh, a godly life makes it harder for God to say no to you when you pray uh, to him. Uh, if I uh, lost my temper, then what was the use in uh, praying to him at all now? I mean, there's no way that he would answer the prayers of, of someone who wasn't perfect. And if I had my quiet time in the morning to start the day, then I would head off into the day uh, with a great confidence of his blessing upon my life uh, that day. But if I missed uh, my devotional life, then the guilt would come upon me and that, you know, I knew God was displeased with me and he would be all day long. I just knew there was no way that I would experience his power uh, in my life or his favor or his power in the Bible study that I was going to teach that evening. And so I spent the early part of my Christian life trying to earn his love and trying to earn his acceptance, to earn his power, to earn uh, his blessings. And it was just works and works and works, all in an attempt to gain his acceptance and his favor. There's only one problem with it. Uh, there was absolutely no peace in it. I had absolutely no confidence in my relationship with God. And why is it that there's no confidence in a works-based relationship with God? Because you never know if you've done quite enough or you've been quite good enough in order to earn God's uh, favor. And then on top of that, our con absolutely constant awareness of our own uh, imperfections. And I had Christianity exactly backwards. I saw it as me being the initiator in my relationship with God. And God now is the responder to all of my uh, good works. And finally, as is always happens, uh, ultimately, if you find yourself in that place, uh, I burned out under the sheer weight of it. And, uh, and I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, if I don't start enjoying this Christian life somewhere along the line, uh, I don't know what's going to become of me. And the Lord was just waiting for that uh, prayer to come from another type A personality. And then he took me by the hand and he began to lead me into a relationship with him that was based upon grace. And now living in response to grace as uh, an expression of my love toward him, as an expression of my thankfulness to him, I then entered into a Christian life that can never come through guilt or fear or any human effort. And now I pray, 
And now I obey him and I read my Bible and I serve and I give, not to earn anything from him, but as a worshipful response to his grace, to how good he's been to me, how gracious he's been uh, to me, the undeserved favor that he continually uh, shows me. And when I fail and when I sin, and uh, of course I will do that all the way uh, to the end, uh, because none of us are going to be perfect this side of life. Uh, The greatest thing that happens when I sin now in my relationship with God is not that he's going to pull out the hammer and he's going to bludgeon me. It isn't a a fear of his wrath that brings me to repentance. The reason I turn to him and try to quickly and restore the relationship is I say in my heart, Lord, you've been so good to me You've given me a life I could have never, ever earned. I could have, uh, I could, I'm not worthy of it in the slightest. You've never given up on me. Uh, you, you've lavished your goodness upon my life. And what I'm sorry about in this sin, what concerns me most is not that you're going to punish me in it, but that I have hurt your heart in any way in what I have done. And then that becomes the motivation, of the response to God's grace that is behind our desire for holy living and a desire for forgiveness and a desire to then uh, to repent of sin and then to continue to grow in a Christ-like uh, life. And so living our Christian lives in response to God's grace, it provides us with the highest motivation for living a holy life. Indeed, in response to God's grace, that motivation, it provides us with a absolutely inexhaustible motivation for holy living. And a proper motivation is critical to the success of anything in life. Uh, There's the story of a young man who took a shortcut uh, home uh, late one night through the cemetery. Uh, and he fell into an open grave. And as he fell into the open grave, he cried out and he cried out and he cried out to be rescued and he tried to climb out, but it was too deep. He couldn't get out and he realized no one was around to hear his cries or to uh, help get him out of the grave. And so he just settled down for the night in the corner uh, of the darkened grave just to wait until the morning. A little bit later, another person came the same route through the cemetery, taking a shortcut home, and he fell into the same grave. And he started to do the same thing, yelling and shouting for help and clawing at the edges of the grave and and trying to get out just as the first one had tried to do. And suddenly, the second fellow heard the first fellow uh, cry out from the darkness of the corner of the grave, uh, uh, saying, you can't get out of here. Uh, But he did. Uh, He did. (laughs) He found a motivation to get out of that grave that the first one did not possess. And motivation is powerful stuff, powerful stuff. An objection. Sometimes someone might wonder, well, if God is loving and gracious, won't it just produce this, you know, vast mass of 
unholy, sin-dominated Christians who will just take advantage of uh, the grace of God. Don't you have to kind of keep Christians hanging just a little bit over the flames of hell to keep them uh, in line and to keep them serious about holiness and obedience? And I understand all about the question. But the fact of the matter is, the hardest thing in life uh, to sin against is love. And if the love of God does not draw a Christian into an increasingly holy and obedient life, then no other motivation will work. It just simply will not do it. Because every other motivation is a lesser motivation. I remember a discussion with my wife when I was, uh, we were dating. And, um, and I remember we were talking about some kind of thing, and I don't know, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, and there was a particular something that she had never done or whatever and, and, and so forth. And, and uh, asking, you know, well, why didn't you? Why wouldn't you do that? And she said, in essence, I'm not getting it exactly right, but she said, in essence... I couldn't do that because it would break my mother's heart if she ever found out. And here was a motivation toward uh, holiness and toward a right decision that wasn't based upon uh, any kind of judgment or discipline that her mother might mete out against her, but a, a, a fear of hurting the heart of a mother who had been so good to her. And it was the, that was a part of a beginning for me to understand the powerful motivation of love in life and in the Christian life uh, as well. A response to God's grace and his love as a motivation for obedience will take us to a place where uh, fear and guilt uh, never will. He then continues here in verse 8, and he uh, speaks of his uh, kind of thanksgiving for them that their faith has been uh, spoken of throughout the entire world. This is the thanksgiving part of, of the letter. Uh, in this, Paul is simply modeling, even though he wasn't aware of the seven, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, they'd come later. But when Paul wrote, uh, Jesus uh, dictated those letters to the seven churches in Revelation, he always began them with a, uh, an effort to find something good to say about the church before he headed into an area of correction. And it's a very good characteristic to have. It's a Christ-like characteristic to have uh, in our lives as as Christians. And so Paul does the very thing here, and he looks for something good to say to them, and he's thankful for them, he said, concerning the fact that their faith was spoken of throughout the entire earth. In other words, the fact that there were Christians who were living for God in the paganism, the idolatry, the sin of Rome, uh, when Christians heard about that in the rest of the Roman Empire and the world, they said, praise the Lord for those Christians that are in Rome and, and making a stand in that environment. It was an encouragement to the rest of the body of Christ. And, and so uh, Paul makes this uh, encouragement and, and, and thankfulness uh, to them. Let me say as an aside related to uh, thankfulness, that thankfulness, and, and it marked Paul's life, it's so important and so vital to make sure that our lives are governed and dominated by thankfulness uh, in our hearts and in our lives, and that they govern our perspectives. 
You and I live in a nation that is very unthankful. You almost never hear anybody say, I'm so thankful, or thank you, or I'm so thankful for this, or thankful for that. Our country has become a place of really ravenous wolves in terms of how we treat one another. And, and so often, all the world can ever see in another person, despite the fact they may be 95% good, is to just see the 5% in their life that I don't like or I don't disagree with. And I will destroy them on the issue of that 5%. And here, this, uh, this unwillingness to see 95% of what is there to be thankful for and to destroy them over the 5%. And a lack of thanksgiving, it does something very bad for our perspective and very bad for our assessment of, of relationships within our, our life and, and results in some very, very uh, bad uh, decision-making as a result. It can result in very, very wild, rash uh, decisions. If I come uh, to focus on a person and all I see is what is wrong, to look at them, and all I can see is no longer what there is to be thankful for in this person, but now only what there is, uh, you know, that, uh, that I see is wrong related to their life. And when that gets a foothold in a marriage or in a spouse toward another spouse or concerning a child or concerning a parent or related to the job that we hold or in some friendship within uh, our lives or even within a church or some other area of our lives. What can happen to us is that we can end up throwing away the greatest blessings in life all of the so many reasons that we have to be thankful for in life, in terms of a family, in terms of a marriage, in terms of a job, in terms of a church, or whatever it might be, and then under the influence of an unthankful spirit, a critical spirit, a fault-finding spirit, throw all of it away. And there is this dominant, unthankful, critical a ravenous wolf kind of attitude that is nurtured and so strong within our culture. And we have to be careful that it doesn't uh, come to mark us as well, that we will destroy a person who is almost universally good or almost completely good and destroy them or leave them or burn the bridge to the relationship on the basis of some relatively small thing related uh, to uh, their uh, life. And it's important in this graceless age that we be careful not to fall under the same spell of unthankfulness that is within the culture and then throw away something in our life where we will just months and certainly years down the road look at and say, I came under the influence of unthankfulness in that relationship, and in doing so, I threw away one of the most valuable things in my life and didn't even realize I was doing it. And I wonder this morning, if God isn't trying to save a marriage somewhere in this room and all of this, 
or some other relationship within our life or to keep us moving from a job or a place that God has placed us in life that we now want to move out from without any kind of consultation with him because a loss of thankfulness has uh, occurred within our lives and important to listen to him in this regard before you throw away something priceless. Paul then closes his, his introduction to them here with making mention in verse 9 of his constant prayers for them and finally his desire in verses 10 through 14 uh, to actually one day come and meet them. He did, uh, but at the time of the re writing of the letter, he didn't know that he would. His desire to bring something from his Christian life and his experience and his gifting into an edifying contact with them and that he might in coming to them uh, in the uniqueness of who they were as Christians, receive an encouragement in, the, in his life as well. All of it is described as iron sharpening iron in the book of, of Proverbs. And he reassures them of the fact that uh, the reason that he hadn't come to them as yet was not because he didn't want to, but there was, he hadn't found a way in God's will uh, to uh, get to them just yet. He closes all of it with, in verse 14 with a declaration that he considered himself to be a debtor to all of mankind. And he, what he meant by that is what is true of every single Christian, and that is any of us who has Jesus in our life, uh, we have the answer to the world's greatest need. And by virtue of being a Christian and having our eyes opened up to the gospel and receiving that salvation, uh, then uh, and, and all of that, those needs being met in our lives as a result, we now have a debt to make that same gospel known to others, which Paul said, I desire to do even in the city of Rome. A wonderful, wonderful attitude to possess as a Christian. And all of this then sets the tone for the rest of the book of Romans. And as we'll look at next time, Paul begins it with a bang. Let's stand together. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. I'll be heading off to Southern California this evening, and so Pastor Gordon will minister the word at our evening service tonight at 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for these gems that Paul is just kind of throwing out one after another, not in a random way, but in a way that he isn't able to bring to its full development, but he wants to say these things to the church in Rome and to us. And we thank you for how precious these things are, Lord, that we've looked at today. And we thank you that where, as we look at the grace and peace and elsewhere in terms of saints, Lord, and thanksgiving and all, and, and for those of us that you've brought us some degree into, a biblical understanding of these things and experiencing these things. We just bless you for that, Lord. And that's why one of the reasons this relationship with you just keeps getting better and better as time goes on. And Lord, we pray as a church family for each person that stands before you today 
that has maybe walked away from Christianity because it's all they've understood it to be was works. They collapsed under the weight of it and then just went back to their old life, that today they would recognize it to be what it really is, Lord, and recommit their lives to you and enter into a biblical relationship with you. And Lord, we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, would you close?